Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 24 of the Benzo Free Podcast. So how are you? Are you doing okay? Having a rough day? Struggling? Or perhaps today is one of those windows and things are starting to look better. I I hope it's the latter. You know, whether you're struggling with withdrawal or helping someone who is or just want to learn a bit about benzos and anxiety and that's why you're here, I just, I hope things are good for you and I hope things are well and I I hope you found that big ass window <laughs> where just things are clearing up and and you're starting to feel a bit more normal. I know that may not be the case, but but that's my wish and you know what, you are going to get there. I know you will. Today in the intro, I want to touch on family for a bit. <laughs> this is a fun one. You know, much like the heart and lungs, which is the topic for our feature today, family is essential to life. With without it, we wouldn't exist. Each of us is the biological result of two people coming together and, well, creating a new life. Whether intentional or not, that's how it happens. Now, sometimes these two people don't even meet and the conception is a result of a donor and managed in the lab. However it happens, though, there is a mother and a father at the beginning and thus it's the beginnings of a family. And as you probably can see, even in my lame attempt at a simple explanation of where families come from, things are already getting complicated. (laughs) Family is complicated. Mine's no exception, and I'm sure yours isn't either. Let me ask you this. It's, It's Christmas time, and you need to travel home to spend time with your family. Does that thought instill a warm feeling or a feeling of love? Or is it more a feeling of angst and confusion and fear? Or is it all of the above? Or perhaps you don't even have a family to go home and visit, and your feeling is that of intense loneliness and exclusion. Regardless, for most of us, spending time with our families generates a variety of feelings, and and many of them can be stressful. They say that money is the number one cause of stress in a relationship, but even if that is the case, I would have to say that family, just in general, is as big or is the next one in line. Human beings, we're flawed. We are innately flawed. And and when you get two or three or four of us together in one home, all trying to do our own thing and, and find our own happiness, problems are going to arise. It's natural. It's what happens. I, I have always hated the terms functional or dysfunctional family as, as if there is such a thing as a functional family. I have never seen one. 
We are humans and every family is dysfunctional. In fact, quite often, the ones we think are the poster families for functionality are a boiling cauldron of unrest, unease, and dysfunction underneath. Families are a unique blend of love and support and stress and unrest. And in Benza withdrawal, this stress, this dysfunction, this drama that comes with every family can wreak havoc on one's recovery. We don't deal with emotions well. We've talked about that many times on this podcast. And few people affect those emotions more than those that are closest to us. So how do we manage? How do we find some semblance of calm in the midst of this family drama? Well, part of me just wants to say we don't and leave it at that. (laughs) And there's some truth in that. I mean, this is family. We're surrounded by it. There's going to be drama. It's just a fact. Most families embody drama. It just is. And we're not going to escape that even when we're in benzo withdrawal. But it's still family. And it's a blessing as much as it is a curse. One of the techniques I found most useful in my attempts of handling family drama is simply compassion. It's, it's understanding. It's, it's finding compassion or empathy for the other person. And, and we can do that in so many things in life. It's not just a good technique in families. It's a good technique in work and in all aspects of life. Trying to step into another's shoes, trying to see things from their vantage point, trying to understand why their point of view is so important to them, trying to realize that they probably want many of the same things you do, and learning to listen and understand and forgive more often than we criticize, judge, and blame. In benzo withdrawal, we need a support system. It is critical to our recovery. And our families are often the ones we turn to for this support. But as much as we need them, we also need boundaries. And and putting boundaries in place is important. It helps us create a space, a protected space where we can recover, where we can go to physically or even mentally in our minds a place we can go to and just be and heal and escape the drama and the stress. But we also need understanding of others, of members of our family, and understanding how our illness affects them and their lives. Be open and communicate, and perhaps you might get through this together and be even stronger because of it. I'm still learning these lessons and have, I have a long way to go. (laughs) When it comes to my family, I'm just starting to understand them better. And and much like they are, I'm doing the best I can at this. And they are too. And we're, we're finding ways of dealing with each other better. So to close out my intro, I just want to let you know that family, like every other aspect of life, comes with good and bad. Try to focus on the good. Try to enhance the good. And as for the bad, try to understand. Try to know where it's coming from and set boundaries to protect yourself so you can survive this and manage better going forward. Today's format will follow our normal routine. We'll open with our intro, which you just heard, and follow with our mailbag, Benzo story, and move on to our feature and moment of peace. In addition, we're going to put our spotlight section back 
just for a few episodes due to an upcoming event. I'll tell you more about that in just a little bit. Our feature today is the symptoms of the heart and lungs in benzo withdrawal. This is part eight of our ongoing 14-part series on the symptoms of benzo withdrawal. Today we'll be talking about flushing and sweating, temperature changes, heart palpitations, air hunger and shortness of breath, overbreathing, and others. And just in case you forgot, we need feedback. <laughs> Questions, comments, stories, suggestions, corrections, additions, and most of all, do you chew your fingernails at all? And if you do, what do they taste like? Anyway, I need feedback. This is your podcast, and the more content I can share from you, the more Benzo Free becomes the community it was designed to be. So please, tell us what you think. Visit our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback or email us at podcast at benzofree.org. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And please remember that the Benzofree podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. If you're listening to this podcast on one of our providers, please leave feedback on that carrier. This helps new listeners find us. Okay, let's move on to our mailbag. Today we have two questions in our mailbag. The first is from Petra in Vancouver, Washington, USA. Petra writes, Mylorazepam dose is 6 milligrams a day. Would like a taper schedule, one without diazepam and one with. I did it cold turkey for a month after a fall. I was too anxious and in pain to go to the pharmacy. It was pretty bad. Anxiety, muscle stiffness, and pain and nightmares. It's no wonder people give up and reach for their pill bottle. Thank you, Petra. Tapering can be very confusing, and the information on it is limited, but there are resources. Now, I cannot provide taper advice. I am not a medical professional, but I can refer you to online resources. The first and best is, of course, the Ashton Manual. Ashton provides several tapering schedules in her manual. Some use substitutions, some do not. This is the first place I would start. In fact, in the manual, Schedule 3 of Ashton's slow withdrawal schedules is specifically for tapering from lorazepam, 6 milligrams daily, with diazepam substitution. <laughs> what are the odds? I put a link directly to Ashton's slow withdrawal schedules in our show notes for those who are interested. Benzodiazepine Information Coalition also provides some excellent resources on this topic. An article on their blog from October 2017 titled Benzodiazepine Tapering Strategies and Solutions is an excellent resource here. It compares a variety of tapering strategies and provides a few recommendations. BIC has other blog posts too on this topic, which can be found by searching their website for the keyword taper. Another great resource is Benzo Buddies. On their Withdrawal Methods page, they include a section on direct taper. According to this page, the majority of Benzo Buddies members make cuts of about 10%, one-tenth of their current dose, every one to two weeks. This is only a rough guideline and may differ greatly based on the person. Please read the page for more information. And one more is WBAD. They have a page on slow tapering protocols, which provides some basic info and links to tapering guidelines and protocols. Now, this is just a brief sample of resources available. There are many more with valuable information you might find on the web. The key point I want to make here is to taper slowly 
under medical supervision if possible. Quitting cold turkey can be dangerous and is not advised. Please, educate yourself before you start to reduce your medication. I'll put a link to each one of these resources in our show notes. Thanks for the question, Petra. I hope this helps others. Our second question is from our old friend Terry in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Terry writes, Hey D, I wanted to run something by you since you are a fellow Klonopin veteran. I am 20 months clean and still having issues that I believe have a strong vagal nerve dysfunction feeling to them. Wanted to get your thoughts on your experience. Here's an odd one. Vibration seems to affect me negatively. When I ride my lawnmower and get off, it's as if I have difficulty with my balance and walking. I think my vagus nerve gets jarred and even have weird disassociation and even loss of vagal tone, blood pressure drop, upon getting off the machine. I have had the same thing happen climbing out of a golf cart. Have you noticed anything like this? Thanks, Terry. Well, thank you, Terry. It's clear that Terry knows about the vagus nerve, but for the rest of us, perhaps I should provide just a short primer. The vagus nerve is actually a pair of cranial nerves, even though its name sounds singular. Don't, don't ask me why. It's the second largest nerve or pair of nerves in the human body, second only to the spinal cord. It controls or influences both sympathetic and parasympathetic functionality, including the digestive tract, respiration, including relaxation and deep breathing, heart rate functioning, including heart rate and blood pressure, muscle movement in the neck, including swallowing and speech, decreasing inflammation, especially in the gut, and dealing with stress, anxiety, and fear. It also has an important role in the regulation of homeostasis. Hmm. Does anyone else notice what I'm noticing here as I read this list of functions, anyone else see the similarity perhaps, you know, to benzo withdrawal symptomology? <laughs> when Terry asked about vibrations and the vagus nerve, he was dead on. Vibrations, manual stimulation, and electrical stimulation can all affect this nerve and its functionality. In fact, there is a treatment called vagus nerve stimulation. A friend of mine actually introduced me to this. It involves electrically or manually stimulating the vagus nerve. It is currently used as add-on treatment for epilepsy and treatment-resistant depression. Studies on the efficacy of vagus nerve stimulation are mixed, with some suggesting that they are generated by the placebo effect. But I have spoken with some people in benzo recovery recently who have found relief from this treatment. Some even claim it has been a huge help in their recovery. Now, I'm not making any claims here at all, but perhaps there is something to this. At this point, the research just isn't there to say one way or the other. Regardless, we know that the vagus nerve, just like all parts of the nervous system, can be severely affected during benzo withdrawal. And it's something we should pay attention to and look into. And that closes out our mailbag today. Now on to the benzo spotlight. Yes, we're bringing back our spotlight section for a few weeks leading up to this special event. In case you didn't know, July 11th is World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day, or WBAD, which, of course, is also Professor Ashton's birthday. This worldwide event is just two weeks from now, so if you want to get involved, now is the time. What is World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day? It is both an annual day of awareness and one of the largest benzo organizations on the web. 
The day is primarily about three things. One, help raise awareness. Two, commemorating Professor Ashton. And three, providing victims a sense of purpose. This is a worldwide problem, and World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day has a worldwide focus. How can you get involved? All kinds of ways. You can host or participate in a local WBAT event. You can distribute pamphlets. You can share something about benzos on the internet. Or even just tell one person that July 11th is World Benzo Awareness Day and answer any questions they might have. You can learn more about WBAD in several locations. Their website is w-bad.org. Their Facebook page is at facebook.com slash worldbenzoday. And their Twitter page is at twitter.com slash worldbenzoday. They also have a YouTube channel titled World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day, which you can find by searching YouTube. I'll put links to each one of these in our show notes. And now let's move on to our benzo story. Today I have a very powerful story of polydrug complications over a 15-year period. This story is from Nicole in Ontario, Canada. Nicole says, In 2001, I was given Wellbutrin Zypan as a smoking cessation drug to help me quit smoking. It worked, and after about three months, I cold-turkeyed the medication, having not been told anything about the class of medication I was taking. This resulted in stomach distress, extreme panic, anxiety, looping thoughts, tremors, fear of being alone, fear of going crazy, sweating, inability to sleep, etc. My parents and fiancé were very concerned about me and took me to the doctor. He referred me to a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with anxiety and panic disorder with OCD after only a 15-minute session. I was 23 years old. The psychiatrist prescribed Paxil and told me I had a chemical imbalance and that I needed a medication like a diabetic needed insulin. My mom was insistent that nothing was ever wrong with me until the Zyban, but the psychiatrist reassured her that these types of illnesses often show up at my age. So I believed I was broken and began taking the medication. Over the course of 11 years, I got married, had children, started a career in healthcare, and was getting sicker and sicker. I slept constantly and never felt rested. I gained weight. I started getting OCD and more looping thoughts. I suffered from headaches, loss of libido, depersonalization, and lots of stomach issues. Each time I went to the doctor, he'd raise the dose on my medication, believing it was my anxiety condition breaking through. After years of this, I wanted off the roller coaster. I was up to 60 milligrams of Paxil, not approved for prescription over 40 milligrams, and I had enough. I was starting to think that maybe the medication was the problem. Without the knowledge and how to withdraw safely, my doctor and I decided on a taper of three weeks. It did not end well. I was very ill and ended up in the hospital with eyes swollen shut anaphylaxis, numbness on the right side of my body, frequent crying, chest pain, and over the course of three months, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which I don't have. At this point, I was reading everything I could about what was happening to me and became convinced I was in withdrawal. 
I went back on Paxil again at 30 milligrams and stabilized before beginning the long, slow process of tapering. I had to fire my doctor and find a new one, and the new one prescribed me Ativan, lorazepam, to help me withdraw. I was concerned about a physical addiction in which I was told not to worry because I don't have an addictive personality and he wouldn't let me become dependent. Ativan worked wonders. They could stop a panic attack in its tracks, and over the course of 18 months, I was able to get my Paxil dose down to 15 milligrams, where I still am today. The problem was, even though I began taking Ativan sporadically, I started getting rebound panic from it, which required me to take it more often. Of course, I didn't realize this at the time. By then, I was taking 0.5 to 1 milligram three times per week. Then I read Madden America and realized I was in big trouble. So I stopped the Ativan cold turkey, believing it would be fine because I didn't take it every day. I woke up the next day unable to walk because of muscle rigidity and was hospitalized for two weeks. I spent close to a year with physio, home care, and in and out of a wheelchair. During the time I was in the hospital for those 14 days, I was prescribed Ativan every single day, but the dose had been 2 milligrams. When I got home without Ativan, my blood pressure tanked and I was back to the doctor shaking, sweating, and experiencing rolling panic attacks. He promptly prescribed Ativan until we could figure out if my multiple sclerosis was back. After taking Ativan, almost all the symptoms went away. And I knew, just knew, it had been the drugs all along. So I stabilized at 2 milligrams and began a 22-month taper off Ativan while halting my Paxil taper. I felt every single reduction and experienced almost every symptom that Professor Ashton discusses. It was a horrifying experience, one that I'm so thankful to be on the other side of. At nearly three years free of Ativan, I am finally feeling healed. I, I can't pretend there wasn't lasting damage, thyroids and hormones and gut issues, but I'm working on repairing those with a naturopathic doctor. I've rebuilt my life the last five years and happy, content, and stronger than I've ever been before. Oh, thank you so much, Nicole, for sharing your story, though. The polydrug complications so many of you go through are harrowing, and I'm so sorry for your struggles. But this was the story of success through it all, and it's always good to hear those. I am so glad you are doing well. I've been corresponding with Nicole since February, and she has been a great supporter of BenzoFree, and Nicole, thank you for that. Nicole would also be happy to connect with others on social media if you're interested. I'm going to put her Facebook and Instagram links in our show notes. Please reach out to her if you'd like to. Thanks, Nicole. We'll talk soon. And don't forget, I still would love to hear stories, short ones, long ones, even if it's just a paragraph or two, I would love to share it here. Just go to our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback to share your story or send an email to podcast at benzofree.org. And don't forget that you can also submit your story in your own voice. Instructions for this are on our feedback page. Let's move on to our feature. 
Today, our feature topic is symptoms of the heart and lungs in benzo withdrawal. This is part eight, as I mentioned in the intro of our ongoing series on symptoms of benzo withdrawal. As I mentioned in the intro, the symptoms include flushing, sweating, temperature changes, heart palpitations, air hunger or shortness of breath, overbreathing, and others. The heart and lungs. You know, few organs in the human body are more essential. Every second of every day, your heart beats and your lungs expand or contract. All in some elaborate dance to provide blood and oxygen to the rest of your body. We celebrate these functions in poetry, in song, in art, and attribute additional traits to these mysterious organs. Breathing and the breath is often synonymous with life. And when it comes to relaxation, calm, and dealing with anxiety, breathing is a priceless tool. In fact, on my desk, I have a cut piece of bark wood with a one-word inscription on it, which I look at daily. It just says, breathe. And our hearts are equally as important. We often attribute love and goodwill to our hearts. In fact, Confucius once said, wherever you go, go with all your heart. In art, the heart is the soul. It's the essence of love. On the flip side, the heart is also the home to pain, hurt, and disappointment. Emily Dickinson once said, If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. The human spirit has attributed a vast array of qualities to our heart and lungs, and many of them inspire great passions and expressions of our desires. But today, we're more focused on the actual physiology of these organs and how their functioning can be affected by benzos and withdrawal. Most of the symptoms in this category fall under control of something called the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system controls the inside of the body. It helps keep the body's internal environment functioning within normal parameters. It is divided into two divisions, the sympathetic and parasympathetic. The sympathetic system gets the body ready for action, especially in an emergency. It can raise heart rate, blood pressure, blood sugar, eye pupil dilation. It even shuts down the gut. All these actions are tied in with the fight or flight response and preparing the body to handle emergency situations. The parasympathetic system returns the body to normal functioning. Its actions are almost always opposite of the sympathetic system. It gets the gut functioning again, preparing it for digestion, slows down the heart, decreases blood pressure, and so on. The vagus nerve, as we discussed in the mailbag section, is a big player here. And thus, damage to the vagus nerve and other nerves which feed the autonomic nervous system can cause symptoms in the related areas. These can include flushing and sweating and, and heart palpitations. Another nerve affected is the phrenic nerve. This one controls the diaphragm and thus breathing. Symptoms of benzo withdrawal here can include any type of breathing problem, including shortness of breath, air hunger, and overbreathing. Ashton wrote the following in the Ashton Manual about heart and lung symptoms. She said, Palpitations, pounding heart, rapid pulse, flushing, sweating, and breathlessness are usual accompaniments of panic attacks, but may occur without panics. 
They do not signify heart or lung disease, but are simply the expression of an overactive autonomic nervous system. Slow, deep breathing and relaxation, as described under panic attacks, can do much to control these symptoms. Do not worry about them. They would be accepted as normal if you were running for a bus and will do no more harm than if you really were. Let's take a look at these symptoms one by one. Flushing, excessive sweating, and temperature changes are very common in benzo withdrawal. They are also common side effects of severe anxiety and panic attacks. As for temperature changes, women in menopause are not the only ones who get hot flashes. People who experience frequent anxiety, panic attacks, or benzo withdrawal can also experience this sensation. Chills are also common. Temperature regulation of the body is often affected by withdrawal. And periodic sensations of being too hot or too cold can be experienced. Anxiety has real physiological effects on the human body. As your heart rate increases, as it does in increased anxiety states, your body heats up. This will cause temperature changes and even sweating. Excessive sweating, also known as hyperhidrosis, is also common. It can be caused by temperature changes or experienced independently. This has been a very common complaint of people who suffer from generalized anxiety disorder, especially in those who suffer from social phobias. Just when you want to be cool, look good, or appear confident, your forehead starts to gleam with beads of sweat, and your armpits, well, you know what happens there. Sweating is a normal and healthy function of the human body, but when it's excessive, it can be very embarrassing. Flushing is similar, but can be different. According to the website Medical News Today, flush skin occurs when the hundreds of tiny blood vessels just beneath the skin dilate or widen. When these blood vessels expand, they rapidly fill with more blood, which can make the skin appear red or pink. Flushing is more noticeable where blood vessels are closest to the skin, such as the cheeks and chest. Flushing can also be caused by anxiety or embarrassment or being overheated, or endocrine disorders, medications, alcohol, menopause, and, and other causes. It is relatively harmless and goes away over time. Flushing can often accompany hot flashes, much like sweating, but can also happen independently. I had all three of these during withdrawal. Big surprise, right? <laughs> I got the hot flashes, which provided me a better understanding of women in menopause. I also had flushing red skin and often had red bumps on my skin, and my skin just had the flushed red color. Now, since I'm a redhead, it blended nicely in with the color of my hair. (laughs) But most of the time, the temperature changes happened at night for me, and I'd be laying above the covers while my wife was buried under a sheet and two blankets because I was so hot. All of these symptoms have subsided for me now, and I'm so happy to see them go. I really am. They they were never disabling in any way, but they were a nuisance and uncomfortable. And on top of all the other symptoms, every one that goes away, I think, is a big gain. There is little you can do to control these symptoms like most others, but just understanding their cause and learning how to adapt can go a long way in getting you through.
Now let's move on to heart palpitations. This is a scary one for many of us. This symptom, sometimes combined with muscle pain in the chest, probably sends more benzo patients to the emergency room than any other. It can be common in anxiety and panic attacks in addition to benzo withdrawal. We're so programmed to panic when we have chest pain of any kind and rush to the emergency room. Why wouldn't we be? So when we have symptoms like this, it adds to our ever-increasing anxiety and thus only makes things worse, and you wind up with another one of those vicious cycles. This was true in my case. Heart palpitations often feel like your heart is racing, fluttering, or, or pounding so hard it will pound right out of your chest. It can also feel like your heart is skipping a beat. If you also have chest pain from muscle tightness or gastric distress, both very common during withdrawal, it can be near impossible to know the difference between a heart attack and the symptoms. The good news is that heart palpitations are usually benign. It's usually just a hiccup in the heart rhythm, and it's harmless. But it is possible that they could be caused by a heart disorder, like atrial fibrillation or AFib, which is a heart rhythm disorder, or arrhythmia of some kind. The key problem is that there is no clear way to know the difference. So it's not a bad idea to get it checked out initially, just to be sure. But once you have been checked out and given the all clear, then the next time you can be a little more at ease. Or at least that's the case in theory. <laughs> Other causes of palpitations can include too much alcohol, caffeine, or chocolate, or dehydration, or low potassium, low blood sugar, fever, illness, and certain medications. These suckers are scary. I mean, I gotta tell you, I've had plenty during my withdrawal, and they were often combined with chest pains like I mentioned above. These would most often happen at night for me. Acid reflux for me, which was aggravated by my withdrawal, often kicks in at night because I was in a horizontal position. Thus, I'd get chest pains in combination with heart palpitations. I went to the emergency room twice during my withdrawal due to this combination of symptoms, and I had a few doctor visits to my general practitioner also based on these symptoms. All in all, I think I've had about five or six EKGs, or electrocardiograms, during my withdrawal the most recent only a few months ago. My doc is used to me now and gives me the test when I ask, and I am grateful for that. I think she knows it will calm me down and is the best thing for me in the long run. Still, most of the time now, I know the cause, and I can calm myself down and don't need medical testing. The good news for me is that every EKG I have taken was negative for any heart problems. In fact, one doctor showed me the strip after my test and said, if I needed to show a strip of a perfect heart rhythm to a class, he could use mine. <laughs> this would keep me going for six months or so. It was, a, it was a major relief. But then one night the fluttering starts again and the chest pain set in and I'm laying there trying to talk myself out of going to the ER, which I usually do, but it is not a fun experience. Like almost all symptoms of withdrawal, these are benign and will ease over time. These have become extremely rare for me now, and I am very, very grateful for that. 
Now, there are specific medications that are commonly prescribed for heart palpitations. These can include ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, digitalis, diuretics, and yes, even anti-anxiety medication. Unfortunately, most of these medications come with their own set of complications. As mentioned above, beta blockers can be prescribed for this condition if severe. They can also be useful in managing extreme muscle tremors and motor jerks. Ashen says the following about beta blockers. They are not a cure, but can sometimes help people through a difficult situation. Unfortunately, just like so many other drugs, they also need to be withdrawn from properly. Ashen follows up with the following. If beta blockers have been used regularly for any length of time, they should be withdrawn slowly by tapering the dosage, as they too can cause a withdrawal reaction of increased heart rate and palpitations. So, unless a symptom is extreme and is hindering your ability to successfully withdraw, it's usually wise to be cautious about adding any additional medications of this type. Please, do not add or continue any medication without the supervision of your doctor. Now let's move on to breathing. There are all sorts of breathing problems associated with anxiety and thus with benzo withdrawal. Some of these can include faster breathing or hyperventilation, shortness of breath, overbreathing, chest tightness, breathlessness or feeling of suffocation, feeling faint air hunger, and others. Let's start off with shortness of breath. Most of us are familiar with this one. When we get anxious, we often breathe faster. It's part of the fight or flight response. It's also the part of excessive exercise. When this response kicks in, your body is trying to get more oxygen to your muscles, preparing them for quick movement. This can cause shortness of breath or even hyperventilation. The best remedy for this is to slow your breathing. Calm yourself down and focus on your breath. Take deeper and slower breaths. This will help return your oxygen CO2 levels to normal and will also help calm your anxiety at the same time. An excellent technique to use here is diaphragmatic breathing. Here's an explanation of this technique from Healthline.com. Sit up comfortably in a chair or lie back on a flat surface like your bed with your head supported. Place one hand on your upper chest and the other below your rib cage. This will allow you to better feel your diaphragm as you breathe. Breathe in slowly through your nose so your stomach moves out against your hand. Tighten your stomach muscles. Let them fall inward as you exhale through your nose or your mouth, depending on what's easier for you. Continue to take deep breaths in and out, feeling your stomach rise in and out. Do this for 5 to 10 minutes a day. If you do get too much oxygen, it can lead to overbreathing or hyperventilation. Your body needs to maintain a balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide. When you get too much oxygen, then you can start to hyperventilate actually making the situation worse. Hyperventilation syndrome, HVS, is when you have a pattern of overbreathing, which can happen in certain conditions, such as benzodiazepine withdrawal. This syndrome can be quite common and is a common cause of dizziness, 
In fact, about 25% of patients who complain about dizziness are diagnosed with HVS. HVS and overbreathing can cause chest pain. When a person overbreathes, the lungs can become overinflated. This can cause the rib muscles to help expand the rib cage, leading to possible chest pains. Remember when we spoke about heart palpitations and chest pains earlier? This is another factor which can trigger that and can often be mistaken for a heart attack. In fact, this was part of my problem. I was overbreathing at times during my withdrawal, and it could even be painful to take a deep breath. I believe this overused my rib muscles, and since our muscles are so tight and locked up in withdrawal, it made the problem worse. I was even diagnosed with costochondritis, which is inflammation of the cartilage in the rib cage. This might have been another condition which added to my pain, or just a misdiagnosis of the original issue with overbreathing. So many of our symptoms are cascades of other symptoms, and each influence the other. It can be very difficult to identify the original cause of a symptom. If you feel you have a problem with overbreathing, it's good to get it checked out. Just like heart palpitations, you want to make sure something more serious isn't wrong. If not, certain breathing and relaxation exercises can help. In case you are wondering about breathing into a paper bag during hyperventilation, it is no longer medically recommended. Now let's take a look at air hunger, or dyspnea. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, air hunger is defined as abnormal, deep, rapid, labored breathing, or a sensation of not being able to breathe in sufficient air, or of needing to breathe in more air that typically results in deep, rapid, labored breathing. The simple definition is to be hungry for air. According to medical news today, symptoms of dyspnea or air hunger can include feeling smothered or suffocated, labored breathing, tightness in the chest, rapid, shallow breathing, wheezing, and coughing. The primary causes of air hunger are asthma, heart failure, COPD, lung disease, pneumonia, and psychogenic problems linked to anxiety. Now, the first of those five causes are quite frightening, but thankfully, during benzo withdrawal, we are usually focused on the last one, anxiety. Still, just like the others in the list, it's good to get checked out by a doctor just to be sure. There are other causes of air hunger which can be quite serious. Waking or gasping for air can also be a sign of air hunger or a similar problem. While it is a common sign of sleep apnea and should be checked out, it is also common in people who suffer from, you guessed it, anxiety. And thus, like everything else in this list, benzo withdrawal. Nocturnal anxiety or a nighttime panic attack can cause you to wake up gasping for air. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, about 70% of people with anxiety disorders report difficulty sleeping. And this is even more true during benzo withdrawal and may be a significant factor for insomnia problems during this time. Air hunger can be frightening and disturbing. For me, it came in the method of waking, gasping for air. This was definitely not pleasant. But, but I could usually calm myself down after it and most of the time I could get back to sleep. Sometimes I couldn't. 
I also experienced air hunger often when I would meditate. I would calm down enough during a meditation session, and then, almost like I stopped breathing, I would feel the intense need to take a few quick breaths as if I was out of air. This wasn't as frightening as the gasping when I was trying to sleep, but it was uncomfortable and sometimes concerning. Both of these symptoms have basically disappeared for me, and as with all the other symptoms that disappear, I am glad. And that should wrap up our feature. Thanks for joining me today, and I hope that you found something helpful in this feature topic. Please remember that symptoms of the heart and lungs are not ones to ignore. Please, if you are at all concerned, get them checked out, especially if you're experiencing chest pains and shortness of breath. It is vital to be checked out by a doctor to make sure something more serious isn't going on. But once you do get them checked out and you get a clean bill of health, then that knowledge can help you calm yourself when and if they happen again. Thanks for listening. Before we get to our closing, please bear with me for about 30 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, and it's an opportunity to quiet your mind before you return to the chaos of the real world. The way this works is that I'll give you a brief introduction, perhaps a suggestion of something to focus on. Then I will play a soft bell which will indicate the start of the one minute. This will be followed by another soft bell which will indicate the end of the one minute. And that will be the end of the episode. Feel free to continue to meditate if you choose. If not, continue on with your day. Please remember that you should be in a safe place to do this. If you are driving or another activity where it is not safe to close your eyes and meditate, then please wait until you are. Today we're going to do a disconnection meditation. Most of you who have been through withdrawal know that feeling of our over-obsessive thoughts, that feeling of being overwhelmed, of being trapped in the negativity of withdrawal or in the issues of your family friends, or the world around you. Well, that's what today's meditation is for. We all need to disconnect at times from technology, from the internet, from our jobs, from our friends, even from our parents, children, and partners. Every single one of us needs that space. Every single one of us needs that place. That place where we can step back and see the big picture and realize that things come and go and most of the time we can't control them and that's okay. Today I ask you to find a quiet place. Perhaps it's a remote spot of your house or a storeroom at work or even just sitting in your car in the middle of a parking garage. It doesn't matter where 
Just find a place where you can spend some time and let the world go by without you for a while. Today's mantra is one we've done before, and it's simply, everything is okay. You could also say everything is fine or everything is all right. Use whatever works for you the best. Let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly along with all the stress of your day. One more time. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let the breath out slowly, relaxing your entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally and focus on your mantra, everything is okay. And if your mind wanders, just gently bring it back to your mantra. No judgment at all. Continue to do this for one minute. Our next episode is episode 25, and it will be released next Wednesday. Thank you again for joining me today, and please, let me know how we did. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.